0: Well, on the second of um, June 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was crowned our queen, and some 7.8 million people watched it. Uh, watched the coronation service in their own homes. 10.4 million people watched it in other people's homes, and 1.5 million people watched it in cinemas, halls, and pubs. And not only did it join the whole nation together as one. But tele-recordings were then flown throughout the world to be watched by many more millions. It was an occasion uh, that demonstrated the global appeal of British pageantry like never before. Our Queen was the 39th sovereign to be crowned at Westminster Abbey in accordance with 900 years of tradition. As she processed down the aisle, she was joined by 250 representatives of the crown, church and state. The coronation service itself consisted of six parts. There was the recognition, the oath, the anointing, the investiture, which included the crowning itself, the enthronement and then the homage. And all of these aspects had to be meticulously planned. The crown that was placed on her head weighed four pounds and twelve ounces and was made with solid gold. She was given an orb of gold surrounded by a cross, girdled by a band of diamonds, emeralds, rubies, sapphire and pearls. And this was all topped off with a large amethyst at the summit. The coronation ring she was given, which is often referred to as the wedding ring of England, takes the form of a sapphire surmounted by a cross in rubies surrounded by diamonds. Needless to say, there was enough bling to make even the wealthiest American pop star jealous. It was an occasion uh, planned to deliberately convey meaning. Meaning. Imagery of richness, of dominance and authority portrayed a sovereign who had complete power over her empire. Surely, this is the way to crown a monarch. Well, as we look at our passage before us today, Luke begins to record the enthronement of King Jesus. And as we look at King Jesus' coronation ceremony, um, we're going to see that it it starts with his procession into Jerusalem. It will go via the painful cross of Good Friday, and it will culminate on that first Easter morning when Jesus rose again before finally ascending to the Father's right-hand side, where he now reigns on his eternal throne. And as we observe this process of Jesus being made King, you might notice some striking differences between what the world expects and Jesus' experience, what he went through. So we'll look at the passage in three headings, which you should have on your batting orders in front of you. Firstly, the enthronement of, the enthronement procession of King Jesus. Secondly, the sorrow of King Jesus. Thirdly, the division caused by King Jesus. So if we've closed our Bibles, can we open them back up again to page 1054 as we start by looking at the enthronement procession of King Jesus. And uh, this is in verses 28 to 40. Well, it's good to remind ourselves that Jesus' arrival at Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives was the culmination of a long journey from Galilee. A journey which began in chapter 9 verse 51 of Luke's gospel where Luke records as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had spent time teaching his followers and specifically his chosen disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. He taught them how to pray, he explained how to find the narrow door of God's salvation and he explained the cost of following him. He's healed many from physical diseases, including some on the Sabbath day of rest, which has incensed many of the hardline religious leaders. And now Jesus is very close to his final destination, the cross. And he's got some very serious work to do. Although Jesus spent most of his life growing up in Galilee, it's now as he approaches the Mount of Olives... Catching first sight of the temple in Jerusalem. He knows he's really come home to the city of God to do the work of God that God has given him to do. You can see it on the screens in front of you. And you know it's perhaps a bit like uh, when we go on holiday as I did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with my family to Cornwall. During the holiday, I was aware that there was work to be done when I returned, but I was able to push it to the back of my mind for a week. But then on the day when we were due to come back, uh, well, I woke up purposefully. I knew that we'd have to leave our cottage in St. Austell by 10am, and I knew that there was a, a six-hour drive in front of us. And I'm sure you're familiar with this feeling because I know you've all been there. As you journey home, all the tasks ahead of you start churning over in your mind. And then for me, as I turned right, uh, the traffic lights off the A244 which takes you to Isha, and into Millbourne Lane which takes you into Claygate itself. Well, I knew my home destination was in sight. My posture changed, and I steeled myself for the work ahead of me. Not, I might add, that serving this church is anything like the sacrifice that Jesus went to on the cross. But I hope you get the point. As Jesus looks across the Kidron Valley, which separates the Mount of Olives from the final climb up to Jerusalem, you can imagine him taking in a sharp intake of breath. The reality of the task in front of him would have suddenly become all too real. And so begins the preparations, the procession of a humble king. In verses 29 to verse 31, Jesus sends off two of his disciples with some instructions to find a colt, a donkey that has never been ridden before. His disciples are to untie it and bring it to him. If anyone asks them why they are taking it, they are to reply, the Lord needs it. So the disciples go a- ahead to the village in front of them, which is probably Bethphage, and they find the colt tied up exactly as Jesus has described. And when the owners of the donkey question why the disciples are taking it, the disciples reply, just as Jesus has instructed, the Lord needs it. Well the answer? answer satisfies the animal's owners, and the disciples take it back to Jesus. They then throw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Jesus' disciples are effectively enthroning Jesus, their Lord, by placing him on a donkey. It's not exactly the royal carriage you would expect. But it's now that Jesus starts to be recognised as the people's king. So as Jesus is processing along uh, the road to meet the crowds in front of him, they spread their cloaks in front of him. A tradition which goes back to the Old Testament, when King Jehu was anointed king over Israel. When Jehu was recognised as the new king, those around him spread their cloaks in front of him and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So we can understand the symbolism that Luke is picking up upon here, as he see, as uh, he's, uh, he hears from the witnesses that the crowds cast their cloaks before Jesus. But the question is, why having walked this far from Galilee, does Jesus deliberately choose to process, in, uh, to process into Jerusalem on a donkey? What kind of statement was he making? Because it, it certainly wasn't the most regal way to announce yourself as king. Well the reason is Jesus needed to embody the kingdom he was ushering in. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah had written about him 500 years prior to his entry into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, at last, it's out in the open. Jesus making a bold and public claim to be Israel's true Messiah and king. But only those with full eyes to see the full picture will notice the gentle and humble king he's claiming to be. You see, it's not for no reason that Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem during the time of the Passover festival, riding into town on a young donkey that's never been ridden before, enthroned on an animal that was suitable for sacred and sacrificial purposes. But for now, the whole crowd of Jesus' disciples, they miss the point. They're too caught up in all the excitement. And who can blame them when they've remembered all the miracles that Jesus has performed? Most of them have set their minds on at last vanquishing the Romans. And so they're ready to follow a powerful king. So in verse 37, when Jesus comes near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, with the whole panorama of Jerusalem before them, The crowd of disciples erupts in spontaneous chorus of praise to God. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, 600 years prior to this, just before Israel was sent into exile in Babylon, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord, leave the temple in Jerusalem and depart eastwards over the Mount of Olives. And now could it be that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem westwards from the Mount of Olives, the glory of the Lord is at last returning home. Could it be that the Lord himself is returning to Zion? For in biblical thought, the true king of Jerusalem is God himself. It's hard not to get swept up in all the excitement, to worship God and to praise his glorious king. That is, unless you're a Pharisee. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. For the Pharisees, this carnival atmosphere is a complete disaster on so many levels. Spiritually, Jesus is at least claiming to be God's Messiah. God's chosen and anointed king. He's verging on direct blasphemy. Politically, when the Romans get wind of all this kerfuffle, um, The religious leaders will get it in the neck for not keeping good order. And authoritatively, Jesus is undermining the Pharisees' power. He's saying, now I've arrived, there's a new ruler in charge. So Jesus, would you please just shut up your disciples before you cause any more trouble for yourself and more importantly for us. I tell you, Jesus replies, if my followers keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out in honour of God's appointed king. Jesus is not only the Messiah come home, he's the king over all creation. Well, I can't exactly see this statement calming the Pharisees' mood. And whereas, uh, whereas previously, when Jesus had before uh, performed miracles, he'd ask people to keep it on the down low, keep it hush hush, don't tell anybody. Now he knows the time has come for him to be declared king, so all of creation must respond. So, what about you? Do you know Jesus as your King of Glory? The one for whom the Bible says the whole of creation yearns for. You see, in this section, Luke is asking us two questions. The first is obvious. In what sense have you joined in with creation and acknowledged Jesus as your ruler and king? But the second is just as important and more subtle. What kind of king have you committed to follow? Because I imagine that many of the people who got caught up in all the, the uh, celebration of, of Jesus' enthronement procession, well, they were so carried away with the glory of the spectacle that they laid their cloaks before him without realising that they were committing to follow a king who would then tell them that to, in order to be his followers, you had to die to yourself. Well, as we consider our own answer to these two questions, we're going to move with the crowd as we then go on to look at the sorrow of King Jesus in verses 41 to 44. Because as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, in what is the high water mark, the high point with the crowds cheering, Jesus becomes overwhelmed with emotion. The sight of the city he's come home to rule reduces him to tears. Jesus weeps because the people of Jerusalem don't recognise him as the king of peace. They don't recognise the time of God's coming to them. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus knows that ahead of him in Jerusalem only lays rejection. Jerusalem, the city whose very name itself means the city of peace, will reject the king of peace. The people of Jerusalem are so consumed with national pride and the desire to overthrow their Roman oppressors that they can't see beyond finding their own personal peace. A peace which they believe will only be achieved once uh, uh, through Jewish dominance in war and battle. And so they expect God's anointed king to lead them in this fight. Despite Zechariah's prophecy, they can't conceive that God's king might come to bring peace to all nations, to Jew and to Gentile. And so in their minds, they make Jesus the type of king that they want him to be. A king who will serve their own purposes rather than the king who rules with concern for all of his creation. And so just as... Jerusalem rejected God's prophets in the past. Jesus knows that their eyes are still closed now, and so they'll reject him too. Furthermore, Jesus weeps because he knows the consequences of Jerusalem's blindness. If Jerusalem fails to recognize the time of God's divine visitation, then destruction is their inevitable fate. So he prophesies ahead to 70 AD, the time when Titus of Rome would come and lay siege to the city, destroying it along with the temple of God. Needless to say, this was a very brutal affair involving famine and torture for those who continued to rebel against Rome. See, this is not Jesus waiting to say, I told you so. Jesus' weeping does not stem from the bitterness of being rejected. But rather from the compassion of a loving king who hates to see his wayward subjects come to terrible harm. Yet still, they will not listen. And when we look at the society we live in today, I can't help that Jesus must be grieving for people's souls. Just like the rich man that Philip spoke about last week with our materialistic lifestyles. We're so rich, we get far too comfy We trade in our pre-loved hope, in uh, eternal hope in Christ for a pick-and-mix salvation, our culture tells us, is available for us here on earth. And so we strive to live the airbrushed lives that the magazine sell us, feeling a kind of temporary, surface-level contentment. That is until next month's magazine comes along and tells us we need to achieve something more or own something bigger and better. We're too busy chasing after the perfect versions of ourselves to recognise that we can only be made perfect in Christ. Or perhaps when something serious does happen and our minds turn to the spiritual, we experiment with God, like someone might experiment with drugs, looking for a quick high, getting upset when the addition of God in our lives doesn't serve our own purposes in the way we first hoped or imagined it would. And so this Palm Sunday, as a Christian and as a servant of King Jesus, as I stop to survey the panorama of our city, the city of London, when I see all the proud and self-serving temples that we set up, the towers we build to the sky, it makes me want to weep with the compassion of Jesus for those who believe that by their own efforts, they can be saved. It makes me want to get down on my knees in sorrow and pray for those who haven't got eyes to see yet. Would God's Spirit rend the heavens open and awaken the eyes of those I care for who are currently living in darkness? And if I don't feel like this, would God put this burden on my heart? But in spite of the sorrow I feel, I'm not left in a state of despair. Out of love for my king, I'm driven onwards to act. You see, even though Jesus knows he'll be rejected by those he came to die for, he still continues on to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission on earth. And as Jesus enters the temple courts in verse 45 onwards, we see the division caused by King Jesus. Jesus doesn't bury his head in his hands and accept the courts of God being uh, temple being profaned. He comes as king to restore God's order. When Jesus sees that God's temple is no longer being honored as a place of worship and prayer, and is instead being used as prime real estate for commercial enterprises, he's consumed with righteous anger. He drives out those who are selling, reminding all of those present that God's house is to be a house of prayer where all have the opportunity to seek gods Not a den of robbers where only those who can afford the inflated prices of the animals can offer the appropriate sacrifices. And what's more, in, ex- in accordance with the law, Roman coins had to be exchanged for Hebrew shekels to purchase these animals. And it seems that some of the commission that was earned was being siphoned off to the high priest family himself. It's not that God is against our business activity. It's just when we place profitability above everything else, we forget that we're created for the higher purpose of serving him. Tim Keller relates in a 2009 speech how James Murdoch, the son of News Corp chief executive Rupert Murdoch, told an audience at the Edinburgh uh, Television Festival, The only perpetual guarantor of independence is profit. Yet in the wake of the phone hacking scandal, three years later, his sister came on stage in front of the same audience and told them, my brother left something out. Profit without purpose is a recipe for disaster. And now played out before our very eyes in the media, we're seeing the consequences of a philosophy that has written the purposes of God out of the way we conduct our lives. So Jesus' words and actions are once again A prophetic warning about the judgment that awaits those who reject God in order to serve themselves. If they will not repent and worship God in spirit and truth, if they will not love their neighbor as themselves, then God's judgment awaits them and they will be driven out of his presence. So Jesus enters the temple precinct with the authority of a king and calls the clerics and the leaders of this corrupt system to account for their actions. His actions are deliberately decisive. So it's no wonder they make themselves his enemy and draw up a plot to kill him. But they know they can't do it in daylight. They have to act in secret. Otherwise there'll be a popular uprising from those who are holding on to Jesus' every word. And the Bible speaks of a day when Jesus will return again in power to restore God's loving rule to this earth. And when he does, all of creation will be called to account for the way we've responded to the gospel of his love. Have we accepted that he died on the cross for our sins? He'll ask each one of us whether we've been loyal to him as our sovereign king. Well, you might remember the parable of the talents that introduces Jesus' procession into Jerusalem before our passage. It's about a nobleman who travels to a distant land to have himself appointed king and then to return. During his absence, he gives his servants 10 miners, the equivalent of 30 months' wages each, and he asks them to put the money to work. In other words, whilst I'm away, go out and engage in trade, Uh, in my name, but you should know this, that it will require you to publicly declare your allegiance to me in the marketplace. However, not everybody is favourable to the nobleman becoming king, and accordingly a delegation goes out after him to try and prevent his coronation taking place. In this period of uncertainty... It could be highly detrimental to those servants who choose to align themselves with their master if he fails to be crowned king. So the nobleman is waiting to see how the servants will respond. Eventually, when he returns as king, he asks his servants to account for the investment he's given them. Were they willing to put themselves out there and to side with him? Well, despite the local opposition, two of his servants prove that they are willing to do his business, turning in a profit which marks them out as being faithful servants of their Lord. And as such, their loyalty is rewarded. They receive far greater responsibility in the kingdom their master now rules over. But as for the servant who tried to hedge his bets, refusing to declare his allegiance one way or the other, Until he knew the outcome of his master's time away. Where it's been proven his chief loyalty lies with himself. Because he's taking the easy option of waiting to see who will triumph before choosing sides. So the king judges him a wicked servant. He's stripped of the investment of he received and is left Desolate. And today, this is the investment policy that Jesus uses with us. As we reflect on the Holy Week ahead of us, are we willing to take a stand and openly declare our allegiance to him in a world where many oppose Jesus' rule? Are we willing to join the March of Witness on Friday morning at 10 o'clock, beginning at the, the train station? Will we put a palm cross in our front window so everybody can see we're looking forward to Easter coming? Will we take one of those Connect and Encourage brochures that CSW have put out for us? And will we write to someone who's being persecuted for their faith? This Holy Week, are you willing to pledge your allegiance to Jesus God's glorious King of peace. Amen.